0: Um, just very briefly we are looking at political divergence between young black americans specifically between uh Mm -hmm. young black immigrants and young black descendants of slavery on three topics uh affirmative action immigration and reparations yeah um and Part of the reason that we wanted to have you on is that we could get a healthy mix. This is the opening episode of the podcast. For example, um, I have one parent who identifies as an ancestral descendant of slavery, as well as one parent who identifies as an immigrant. Um, Chelsea, I don't know if you want to talk about your background. Uh,
1: Well, my background is both my parents are, you know, distance of slavery
0: uh, and then we knew that you'd be a really good person to talk to uh, because both your parents are immigrants and we, you and I have talked a lot about blackness at Williams and outside of Williams. Um, so we thought it'd be really cool to have you on this first podcast to kind of talk about and work through many of the things that we've been talking about and researching these past couple weeks. Um, so yeah, thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. So, um, this podcast, unlike the others, is like less of an interview and it's more of a free flowing thing. So, we can just get started with kind of shooting questions off each other. I know the first question that we had, and I can ask Chelsea this, is why did you agree to be a part of this project way back in January when I pitched it to you?
1: I decided to do it one because it was a different type of project that I hadn't done before, and also. In class, that we used sort to of really focus on the difference between the black community that's treated as monolith. and I think the difference between like immigrants and people who are descended from slavery is actually a really interesting conflict that happens because their path of life can really just impact their politics and how they're integrated within the black community. And so that's like, okay, this would be a cool project.
0: Good answer. Um, and Jason, a little bit of. A rephrasing the question why did you agree to be on the podcast this morning oh
2: i well i agreed to this because you asked me jason and you're my friend and didn't want to disappoint you additionally i think it was a, a great opportunity to kind of speak to different experiences of, of being black at williams and um, the positionality of like having like either like first generation immigrant parents or second generation immigrant parents and the discrepancies within the experiences that we face and like how that communicates, like what our values are on campus, how we interact with kind of different people on campus and uh, what we can all learn about that. And I think within my own time at Williams, it wasn't something I thought of actively, but um, in hindsight, it did kind of reflect in the different friendships that I kind of had and like who I kind of got closer to kind of in terms of like who could speak better to my experience,
1: so yeah. So, Jason, why did you want to do this project? I mean, you pitched it to me. So,
0: I think the reason that I originally thought about doing something along these lines is growing up in DC felt very much like this conglomeration of a lot of different types of Black people, but with also a very storied past of kind of descendants of slavery being right, you know, between the North and the South. Um, and growing up, I heard a lot of different rhetoric from the, the different sides of my family as it pertained to, you know, what it meant to be Black in America, what it, what it meant to conduct yourself as a person of color, as a Black person in your everyday life. And I saw wildly divergent and different definitions of what that meant. Um, you know, for the kind of ancestral descent of slavery side of my family, it was a lot of having your history grounded in the history of the United States and everything that that carries. And, you know, that you are universally tied to the struggle by that. Versus, you know, on the immigrant side of my family, I found very much, you know, blackness tied to advancement to, you know, working hard in school and personal uplift rather than, you know, the uplift of the race. So I always saw those kind of conflicting powers in my family and it wasn't until I became older that I realized they were somewhat conflicting. And so I really just wanted to do kind of an academic study of how other people felt towards those issues. Um, and I think that's that's kind of why I really wanted to do something along those lines in terms of a project like this. And so this is something that we've asked on our survey Chelsea to a lot of different people. I think like going on 70 now, um, but what does it mean to be a black person and how important is the black identity to your daily life? And Jason, if you wanna hop if you wanna answer that question first, actually.
2: Yeah, no, I I think for, for me it's like I think when I'm back home, I, I think it matters situationally or within different contexts. So I think right now I'm back home in New York and so everyone I, I see is, is black, everyone around me. I think I live predominantly in like a West African neighborhood and living with like with my family, all of us far from Ghana, and then we live in like a greater kind of Latinx community. And so when I'm like with my family, it's like, it, it's just like second nature. It's like, I'm, I'm just kind of me. I think when I interact more with my blackness when I'm kind of positioned around people who aren't black. And so I think kind of comes out more at work. Um, and so in considering like work takes up like the majority of my time, I'd say like probably like 70% of my time really I think about it more when I'm at work for the most part, I'd say like 95% of the people I've worked with are white. And so, it's like when I'm at work, it's like, I'm always cognizant, especially because I'm working from home. It's like, I'm cognizant of like, right now I'm virtually in like a space where I'm experiencing my blackness. However, like physically I'm like around people where I don't have to feel like I, I, I am, I suppose. And so I think in that instance, it's a very like kind of weird experience, like, kind of virtually know that I am black in like a physical sense that I'm just kind of like one of my own people. And so it's, it's a, it's a strange thing. And, and I guess to, to me to be black is to have to like be cognizant of that and have to like position myself in, in ways where I'm just like, I'm still maintaining my, my comfort within a physical and a virtual space. Um, and I guess I, I think working in COVID has kind of given me that kind of, that kind of Opportunity to see how that looks like and in um, different ways like it affects like my mental health I suppose. So, yeah.
3: Jason, you want to answer the question?
1: Sure. Uh,
0: I think Jason kind of hit the nail on the head with how I, I feel towards a lot of things. I think being a black person in America is being cognizant of, you know, those maneuverings. Um, I think one intrinsic struggle with me about what does it mean to be a black person, how does a black identity affect my daily life, is that for a lot of people, I don't appear to be black, both, you know, black and white people. I think, you know, I often get, when I say, say that I'm black, I often get like a questioning from both white and black people, which is interesting. Um, about whether I truly am Black. And I've always had this very, like, tenuous link to Blackness, I feel like, because of that. So I think to kind of, like, make up for that that tenuousness, that tenuous attachment that I feel a lot of times to being Black, I think manifests a lot in this, like, academic space in terms of, like, recognizing the shared history and, like, how that has shaped me as a person, has shaped my family, continues to shape the issues that, you know, everyone who's Black in America faces. And I don't know if I subscribe to this kind of like exclusionist attitude of that, you know, Black American history is just for, you know, ancestral descendants of slavery. I think it's an all-encompassing history that grows every day um, with these kind of shared experiences, shared outlooks, you know. If I were a political scientist, I would call it linked fate or whatever the term that they love to use. but I, I do think that's a somewhat real thing. I think for me, that's a, kind of what it means to be a black person in the United States um, today. So, Chelsea, if you wanna round it out.
3: Yeah, I feel like I agree with a lot of what you both said, especially um, Jason, you said that you more constant when you're you know, around different groups and everything, because I think it's interesting like when you're in college, right? You're surrounded by a ton of people who aren't Black and you don't understand. And you're just always really aware of that when you're interacting with them. And it's kind of always on your mind, especially if you're, like, I was in, like, on the cross-country team, right? The very white space. And I was always thinking about that. And, yeah, so I feel like being Black, especially in college, take it's, like, it is your life. Like, it's just... It really means a lot to you at this point. Whereas I do feel like when I went to, you know, predominantly Black school, like in middle school, I never thought about it. Like I was just me and that's how everyone saw it. But as soon as I did enter a white space in high school, it was very much more apparent that I needed to be thinking about that more. But also how being Black, I feel like what that means to me is like, you're always told, or at least I was always told when I was younger that you have to work really hard because you're black. And like, I was in the South. So, you know, like you're in the South, you're black. They don't want you to succeed. You need to do whatever it takes to succeed. I mean, not only for yourself, right? It's because it will be good for every black person. You will hopefully bring that back to the community. You'll help your community. So like you said, like link fake of just like, if you do well, that's good for all of us, which I feel like is why, right? Like Black people put so much importance on when people become a Black president and everything. Like, it's like truly believing, like you become like a representative. And if you're like a really good representative for like, you know, Black people, like it definitely has just been a huge part of my life and probably continue to do so because I'm still going to another predominantly white institution after this, but.
2: Actually, I think that's pretty interesting in that I think I had a different experience as it pertains to like a linked Fate. I think it wasn't until probably around like 07, 08 when like Obama was like making noise as like an actual candidate where I think in my own family, um, I'm not sure if this is like indicative of like the like first generation American experience, but like, I think prior to that, it wasn't like a, um, like, oh, if you like like, study hard in school, like, everyone else within our race is, like, going to raise a it was more, like, everyone else in, like, our family is, like, going to, like, come up with you. And I think once, like, Obama became president, it was, like, actually, maybe it's, like, like I think they, like, associated themselves, like, with Obama in that sense. And it was, like, actually, like, you know, if you raise yourself up like him, you can also lift all of us up. And I think it was such an interesting thing to, like, see um, kind of the ways in which we kind of or my family kind of kind of became a part of this um, kind of global kind of black experience as opposed to just like a Ghanaian black experience, which is like really interesting and something I hadn't seen prior um, for, I think, a number of different reasons. But, but yeah, it's kind of how I felt as it pertains to like linked fate. to faith.
0: Yeah. No, I, it's so interesting because I feel like for a lot of people, Obama was just like very momentous occasions. you know, especially for a lot of Young black people, you know myself included. Um, but I, I I find it really interesting. I my grandmother immigrated to the U.S. in the '60s, originally to Georgia, um, you know, segregated South. And she, you know, she was there at the March on Washington. You know, she always recalled how she like had her feet in the in the pool, in the reflecting pool, while Martin Luther King spoke. And I remember talking to her about. Um, you know, Obama, the election of Obama. And one thing that kind of stood and continues to stand in my mind is how it was like these these moments of, you know, spark in American society where, you know, you feel this this power of linked fate, this term that we keep using, of where you feel connected to this greater, greater fight and struggle. You know, for her, it was the March on Washington. For a lot of Black people, I feel like it was the election of Obama. Um, but I think one thing that's a little different from, you know, her experience, our experience is that we seem to have these sparks very often, nowadays, you know, especially with kind of the advent of social media, you know, the police killing of black men, Um, it seems like these sparks are more existent in American society than they were before, at least more advertised. Um, So part of me wonders, you know, is it easier in the 21st century for a person who identifies as a black person to feel connected to the black struggle because of these sparks? Um, for lack of a better word. That's something that I've always wondered about. Um, I don't know if Chelsea and Jason, you kind of have noticed that as well, or if you kind of feel that sentiment. But I think I, I, in a way, feel more connected to blackness because there's just so many sparks, quote unquote. There's so many events where, you know, I feel kind of echelon into this, this arena. Um,
3: I mean, I feel like you are right. Every video that comes out about like, you know, police brutality and everything. I think it just reminds people that we are still connected, right? And that it really doesn't matter. Like if you're black, this can really happen to you. And just to strengthen, I feel like, especially with our generation, that like, although our differences matter, like on this issue, like it doesn't, right? Like we really need to stick together on this issue to really help each other because this can be any one of us. And that at the end of the day, this cop isn't gonna really care about, oh, technically you're a descendant of or technically you know you're something else so i think it's somewhat useful and that like i feel like brings the black community together reminds people that they have this issue in common
2: yeah and i think for for me in particular it's like it's not necessarily that i feel like we're feel i i, I think it's interesting how um we sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes kind of gain a greater sense of community in trauma, which is a strange thing to, to understand. Um, it, it, it's a, I guess, it, a tragic thing to understand. You feel these things viscerally because of who we are as black people. And thus when things like a shooting of an armed black person or any black person really like makes like headlines or like we get released videos um, it just like it hurts viscerally. And I think that like kind of deeper understanding of why it hurts so deeply, I, I think it like, I think makes those connections. Um, and I think that like will bring us closer together, um, at least on the surface. I think once we like actual kind of policy decisions, I guess we can kind of see where don't, I guess, connects, maybe more on like a class line of like, I think I think the conversations on like, or defunding police um, were like interesting in seeing like like where like class-wise people were saying like we should defund police and where we shouldn't defund police. And it's so, like, all right. I think these, con- these like connections are, um, I guess, are these connections like spur of the moment because of like the trauma we're feeling or is it like, or are, are, are they deep enough to sustain like not only this pain that we're feeling but also like the solutions that we're trying to come up with. And so I, I thought that was pretty interesting.
0: I guess kind of along those lines of, you know, lasting versus momentary. Jason, I know that you just got your license or you're now kind of beginning to drive. So um, I think one universal... Low blow. Low blow. I'm I'm
2: learn, I'm, I'm going to get my license. Getting, to all the listeners out there, I'm get, I'm getting my license. It's a working process. You know, I think one
0: kind of universal experience... I, Hesitate to say universal, but I think one thing that people commonly think of when they think of the young black experience is getting the talk, quote unquote, um, kind of connected to the killings of unarmed black men. Um, You know, the talk for those who don't really know is the talk that parents usually give their children when they're learning how to drive about how to conduct themselves when they get stopped. um, By a police officer. So the. Kind of first question we have along those lines is you know chelsea and jason did you get the talk what did it look like and what did it mean that you know you got it told to you
3: i actually never officially got the talk but i feel like i knew like it was very obvious that mm, you're not going to be safe with the police <laughs> and i just remember a lot of times like my mom not being able to find my brother and her being really scared and like bringing up the police trying to get my brother to understand he wasn't safe, especially at that time we were living in an area that was predominantly black and low income. So I just could tell that you were not gonna be always safe around the police and that you should be polite and that's it. Because even I think at one point in my life, we were actually pulled over by the police and my mom had to get her license, right? And it was behind her, so they assumed she had a weapon and they didn't draw their guns, but they, you know, did the police thing. things like, oh, reached for their guns, right? And I feel like moments like that just really hit me like, oh, you could really be harmed by them. Like these aren't people who are really out there to protect you. Um, but yeah, she never actually had to have the talk. I just feel like the way she would react around the police and the way she would talk about them.
2: And I think for, for me, I think also I would never officially had to talk from our parents. It was always like in our I think our periphery, it's like, oh, like we, we see what's going on um, clearly like conduct yourself in a way where you don't make yourself seem like a threat. And I think the first time we actually had like a conversation about it, it wasn't necessarily me with my parents. It was more me with um, my kind of elders in our church. So my family goes to a parish church. Um, it's like mainly our Ghanaian community. And so it was a conversation with um, a a member of the Office of Black Ministry of New York and a conversation between our church's youth, which is primarily first generation um, Americans and then Ghanaian immigrants. And so I think a lot of the, our uncles and aunts were saying like, oh, if you interact with police, what you guys need to do is that, you know, just listen to everything you say, comply, comply, you know, don't. Don't give them a reason to assume that you're gonna be a threat. And a lot of what we were saying is, I think the children were just like, even instances where we would comply, that doesn't guarantee our safety. And I think the conversation we were having was that I think we understand where it's our initiative and we have the agency to comply, but the issue isn't our compliance necessarily. I think our systemic issue isn't our compliance. And while it's easier to of control what's in our own power i think it's a lot more necessary to kind of like turn that conversation back towards being our police forces and understand that and i think it was a bit of a debate and something that we never really kind of got resolution on and i think it's probably gonna be something that we unfortunately have to have a conversation about moving forward it's like while for for us it was like i think we understand that even in our kind of most stringent compliance it's It's not a guarantee to be safe I think for a lot of our parents it's like just like listen to what we say like listen to like like comply listen to what they what the police say and like you'll be fine I think that disconnect is like really hard to bridge um even with
0: the things we see right now so I so for the record I very much did get the talk um, when I was learning to drive about how to you know conduct myself if I ever got stopped by the police um and reflecting on the times that i have been stopped i recall one time where i got stopped this was late at night um i just learned to drive not just learned but i i was a new driver um and he stopped me because i had stopped too far above the white line at a stop sign which is an absurd thing to stop someone for but anyway and i remember he was shining the light in my face so i couldn't really see him and he unholstered his gun and he said you know put your hands you know where i can see them." um and i think for me that whole experience was somewhat paradoxical because i live in a place that is overwhelmingly Black, and Black in the sense that, you know, the entire county is very wealthy and very Black, and, you know, most of the policemen are Black, Um, although this policeman was White, and, you know, I feel like a lot of times, especially for a lot of Black people who live in Prince George's County, where I live, there's this like veil of safety that you know you're you're safe from these kind of external forces that you would expect in bigger cities in the south things like that um and i just remember jason like you were talking about like that disconnect like i felt like i had done everything i needed to do and remarkably calm for what 16 17 year old and it was this other person who was who was escalating it um and you know there is that disconnect that i felt that i had done everything right but i'd still gotten to that point and you know thankfully nothing happened but you know for me it was always just this like it like pierced this veil of protection that i thought that i had growing up um you know where people weren't stopped all the time you know police interaction with the police were very few and far between and you know i just don't think a lot of people get it like for example when i'm driving around dc or i'm driving to see a friend or something like the first thing i always think about when i leave the house is like what if i run into a cop or like you know you see a lot of people for some reason like to buy old cop cars <laughs> and just like drive them around you know and like my heart skips a beat when you see someone in a car like that or you see a car that you think is an undercover cop or you just see a cop driving by um you know that that is always at the forefront of my mind when I drive and I don't think a lot of people get that Um, and how distracting that is you know when you're driving you need to focus on getting from point A to point B but if you're worried about being stopped if you're worried about getting there safely you know that takes a toll Um, you know I can't really remember the last time I've driven around DC without that worry.
3: Identify with, like Black, African American, or something else, and why do you identify that way?
2: For, for me, I identify as um, I think initially, I think when I was younger, I identified more with I was uh, a Ghanaian American um, and like making my ethnicity kind of more, or I put a greater emphasis on my ethnicity when I was in grade school. Um, I went to uh, predominantly Latinx um, and black grade school, and so everyone I, I knew like, had that like ethnicity, like oh, I'm Jamaican, I'm from Puerto Rico, I'm from, I'm from the Dominican Republic, things like that. Um, and so it was like it was very common to just be like, oh, like this is where my family's from. Um, and, and growing up, it just felt like the natural thing to do. And then I got to high school and I went to a predominantly white all boys school and it was just like, I was one of four black students in like a grade of or like class of 128 and so I think we were just like we were just black it was like the first time I was like oh you're, you're this is who who you are and so I think from that point on it was that from that point on until like today I kind of identified as just like a black kind of student with the with the knowledge that I, I am a first generation American um and that knowledge would become more privy and like specific circumstances. So I think I have a really good group of friends in high school who i um, went to college with Who are like, we're all really close and we're all students of color. Um, and they know that I'm um, a Ghanaian immigrant. And I think with a lot of my other classmates who are white and like weren't privy to that, it was just like, we didn't even have the conversation about it. It was just like, you are, um, it was just you're black and you're white. And it was, it was kind of interesting in that, like those conversations would like happen I'm only with, like, close friends, Um, and I I think it's interesting that even, like, when I graduated from Williams, like, the people who would who know my ethnicity were mainly, like, other students of color, um, because I guess we could have, like, contextual conversations about um, what it meant to have, like, parents from, like, from West Africa as opposed to, like, East Africa, um, West Africa as opposed to, like, the West Indies and the Caribbean and things of that nature, and and I guess, like, um, as well as people who had parents who were descendants of, of slavery. And so we we could like have these like contextualized conversations that I couldn't have with like students who weren't privy to that kind of different context. I
0: don't know, this is something that I've, I've kind of thought about recently quite a bit. Um, I think Chelsea, an interesting statistic that we came across in our research for this project is that Ancestral descendants of slavery are not even the most likely group to identify as African American it is people who immigrated to the United States from Africa so African Americans intuitively you know makes more sense. Um, And I don't know I always envisioned black as this kind of like amorphous label that didn't really fit into my life. Um, I think this is something that i've kind of seen growing up is that, you know, African-American cultures, not African-American, but, you know, ancestral descendants of slavery, you know, culture and history in the United States tends to be very all-encompassing. It tends to kind of swallow everything else up around it, you know, so when you see a lot of people walking around the street, you assume that, you know, they're Black in the terms of their an ancestral descendant of slavery a lot of times, um, and so Black never really felt right but neither did African-American. And kind of along those lines, as a second generation immigrant from Trinidad, that didn't feel right as well because, you know, like I said, African-American culture is so encompassing and, you know, diasporic culture and, you know, behaviors and attitudes tend to kind of, kind of get lost in that that wave, um, especially kind of as you, you know, spend more time in the U.S. So I don't, I honestly don't, Think I have a label for myself. I think just because of that conflict that arises between both sides of which I identify, um, I just, I, I don't know what. I think in the US Census Bureau sense, obviously black, African American, but personally, I'm, that's something that I think changes based on context very much for me. So I don't, I don't know if there's one particular label that I think circumscribes my entire identity as much as I would like it to.
3: I mostly use black and African-American like interchangeably like I feel like to identify if I'm even talking about it to other people and I think one and I did talk about to a friend here actually that being African-American actually was really close to my identity and it meant a lot to me that I was like descended from slaves in the U.S. and but I don't necessarily like someone asked me I should be like hey I'm black because I also think it's for me, the most inclusive one, like you're not, when someone says they're black, you're not sure about any other differences that exist in the black community. And I feel like even when I was younger, a lot of times yeah, like people just like you're black, like, and just be like, why are you trying to have like, identify something different? And I think they would say that to, not only just in the slavery, but also to people who are immigrants right because and trying to like really enforce the linked fate and that you no know, we're all on this we're all black and so yeah I think most of the time I really identify as black because it seems for me it just seems the most inclusive term
0: are perhaps less abstract. Uh, Each of the three questions kind of ties to a topic that we've been asking a lot of other people what they think, um, but now kind of fleshing out what we think. So we can start off with the first question, which is about reparations, which is, would reparations be an adequate demonstration that the United States is committed to addressing the consequences
1: of slavery?
3: I... Maybe, (laughs) which is not really a great answer, but for so long, the U.S. has been so against giving Black people reparations. I'd be like, wow, (laughs) maybe they're changing, but I also feel like easily, and I think a lot of fear that some Black people do have is like, okay, they give us reparations and say it's money, right? Do they think they're done? Do they think that's all we ever wanted? And so... Yeah, just, like, would it really show that the U.S. had really changed Is really moving forward? I just feel like reparations alone, even if that was, like, their first step, I'd be, like, I'm not convinced. I feel like it would have to be cared with like, some massive change in criminal justice reform or, like, to really show. But just reparations? No, because it's just been so long. And it's, like, now you need reparations for, like, everything. Because it's, like, original for slavery. Now it's, like... Jim Crow happened and now like still all of those generational trauma and then still the trauma we still have today so it's almost like it's a little late
0: but along those lines I'm I'm looking at the survey results that we did and only 20 percent of people said that it is very important to them that reparations be exclusively provided to descendants of slavery whereas nearly one in three people said it's important that they be provided to past victims of discrimination Um, so it seems like there is like that you alluded to like a very big distinction of who should reparations be provided for and I actually fully agree I don't know that monetary compensation is the right is the right move especially when there's been such a big divestment in black communities for so long and as we see like there is often a lot of legislation and executive action and things like that towards improving the lives of Black Americans, but I think where that kind of falls apart is enforcement by the federal government. You don't really see that too often when it comes to either enforcing civil rights legislation or enforcing things like that. So I think for me, the biggest thing that could exist for reparations, as we call it, quote unquote, is a concerted and enforced effort to invest in Black communities over time. Um, And I think that's the only thing that would lead to lasting change. I think that, you know, the one-off of, of, A racialized stimulus check, (laughs) um, for better or for worse, wouldn't really solve the issues that we see and really wouldn't be an adequate demonstration. Um, But it seems like there is a lot of, you know, especially from our survey results, you know, 30% of people said that reparations should take the form of monetary compensation. So there clearly is a lot of disagreement among people about what form reparations should take.
3: Um, Before Jason gets in, I think like what you said, like a one-off payment would not be enough and people just feel like, what is that gonna do? But I, I wonder what people, and we should have asked this, like what people think about continuous, right? In a form of almost a UBI and what that would do. Because I think that would, you know, actually make more of a difference, but I think maybe that's also what people could be thinking about.
2: I think for me, it's like, I, I don't know if reparations would be, like, enough in that, like, one, I guess that assumes we can, like, quantify the, like, monetary value of, like, pain, and then, which is, like, like, near impossible, and then I also suppose, like, because, like, like, issues of, like, discrimination, issues of slavery are so, so wildly, like, integrated into, like, every facet of our lives, it's, like, I guess optimally, like if we were to do reparation, would be like we'd have to not only do like continuous checks. Um, then we'd have to have a conversation about like, do we give checks to like people who who have children or do we give checks to the children, people who also got checks? And it's like, when do we, when would it like stop if ever? Um, and then additionally, like, which would be nice, like like talking about like ending mass incarceration. Well, like how do we, or the school to prison pipeline things of that nature um and so it's like it would not be like a there, i don't think it'd be like any like one-off like stop on like we just give them this amount of money and like it'd be over it's like it's so much more exhaustive than that um and then we also have to take a look at like how different like like big players of like american capitalism like also still like have, like, made a living or, like, have made, like, fortunes based off of this, like, continuous, like, like kind of black trauma and, like, what does that mean for them? Like, are we in reparations? Does that mean we're also, like, divesting from them altogether? Like, are these companies going to fold all together? And and I guess when we talk about the American economy, I think we have even more complicated conversation, not even complicated, it's, like, more difficult conversations about what we can and can't do. And so I think for me, it's, like, hard to understand where to start, but I do know, like, there is somewhere to start. I'm just unsure, like, where to start and, like, how do we begin identifying who is, like, most prioritized in terms of getting their reparations. (music)
3: What does affirmative action mean to you? And were you ever made to feel unqualified?
0: I can start off. Um, I recently had a conversation with Paladentry, Dentry, who helped us out with this podcast quite a bit. And she kind of gave me a crash course on what affirmative action means and, you know, how I was completely incorrect in my my assertion of what it meant to be. Um, for me, growing up, when everyone heard the term affirmative action, it was always negatively. Um, it was always made to seem like you are only here because you are taking the spot of someone else, um, you know, to fill some unstated quota, um, that, you're only quali- that your only qualification is, you know, your skin color. Um, and that's the only reason you're in this place. What I think... Was really interesting about that kind of train of thought. Whenever one talked about affirmative action, growing up, is that a lot of times, most times, really, it was white people kind of weaponizing that that term to say, you know, you everything that you've accomplished, everything you know, all the hard work, and like Chelsea, like you spoke about earlier, you know, this this intrinsic need that you need to work really hard to be black in America. And, you know, a lot of times people kind of wipe that away when they say, you know, you're only here because of your skin color, because you fulfilled the, the diversity goal of whatever institution you're at. And I think, you know, that is really, really damaging, you know, to feel, to make someone else feel unqualified just because, you know, they belong to a certain race, they belong to a certain ethnicity when they've worked so hard to get to where they are. And it was it's, it's just so interesting to me that those moments only ever rose when there was some sort of competitive nature involved, right? So a lot of times I think it, it arose for me in the college admissions process and like you're vying for select spots and, you know, where people are looking for anything to discredit you. So they are reliant on this kind of historicized, racialized term to achieve that goal. And I know for better or for worse, I think that happens a lot of times at Williams. Um, You know, a lot of times we call it imposter syndrome, but I think, you know, it goes beyond that for a lot of Black people, especially myself. um, You know, it's not just that I'm not qualified, it's that, you know, I don't really deserve to be here. Like these internalized feelings of unqualified, you know, behavior, and a, a lot of times for me at least that's tied to race and these notions of, you know, why am I actually here. So I think, you know, breaking down that internalized conception of, you know, that I actually am qualified, that I have worked hard, you know, that I'm not just here to fulfill a quota. I think is something that not a lot of people like actively work towards. And it's surely not something that I actively work towards, but it's something that I think I'm actively working towards now. And I'd be really interested to hear your guys' perspective on that.
3: Yeah, I agree with you that it really had a negative and kind of positive like tone to it when I was younger. Like Since I was like, you know, really good in school, everyone was like, oh, with that and like affirmative action, you'll definitely get in wherever you wanted to get in, which wow, so false. But at the same time, it was like, you had to still work insanely hard, right? Like they were still like, even though that might be there to help you, you have to be the best. And that was something I dealt with a lot, but I feel like since you said you, like, at Williams, like, we call it imposter syndrome, I, for me, actually didn't really think I was ever unqualified here, to the extent, I mean, more, I was probably just overwhelmed, but I feel like at this point, I wasn't, like, I got in here because of, like, oh, I'm Black, and, like, oh, I was just, like, I knew I worked hard, right, like, I feel like at the point that I got to here, Williams, I was, like, No, like no one's gonna say that to me because it's not true. But I feel like when I went to um, my high school, just like a private school, I was made to feel that way. Someone even explicitly told my mom, um, Oh, your kid is just here, you know, Mr. Black, and also they're good at track. And also, I feel like it just always ingrained in me, okay, you have to work harder because you have to prove yourself even more that you deserve to be here. And yeah, that has happened continuously through high school. Even in the end, I still felt like, oh, I have to prove it. Um, and I until I got here, I was like, you're not qualified. And so what? You didn't fit the traditional standards. Because I feel like with college admissions, right, we look at, oh, what was that person's ACT score? And what was that person's GPA? And, and I feel like more and more, for better or for worse, right, like we're moving away from that. It seems like undergrad at least is. And so maybe... I don't know, people can't use like, oh, you're unqualified because you didn't have the scores. But I feel like a lot of people here actually like don't have necessarily the average scores that Williams accepts. And that kind of leads to people feeling that unqualified feeling. But I think with, I feel like more time going, more people realizing like when the ACT and SC are not really good predictors of success, that I think more and more people who are Black or people of color in general just won't see it as them being unqualified, they were just accepted by their race. But I do think people are always going to use that as an excuse. And as we're going to find out with our affirmative action episode, that like, we don't know a lot about college admissions. Like it really is just like this stupid of thing. Who really knows how they pick people, honestly, at the time? And it kind of seems sketchy all around, but...
2: No, I get that. And I think for, for me, with... Um... College, uh, with affirmative action, I think growing up, it was like the same thing. It was like this, like, two-sided coin. It was like, oh, like, it's like good. I get have like a, a, I suppose, like a better chance to like get into school. And then I think in high school, it was like this, like, negative connotation because, like, oh, I'm only getting into like these selective schools because of my, my, like, my race. And then I think I had like a, a Pretty like foggy kind of view of like affirmative action, kind of as you both like indicated. Until, um, I think I I took a class on like I think the American state with like Nicole Mello, and we talked about we read a book, I think, I think it was called When Affirmative Action Was White. I think it's by Ira Katz Nelson. If I remember the author, that's wild, but um, it it was like a, a, a really a really good book um, kind of talking about the GI bill and why I think when American soldiers first returned back from, I believe it's like World War II, like they had all these like different benefits available to them, one of them like enabling them to like go to college and enabling them to like buy houses, all these things being like means of like establishing income, Establishing like forms of wealth within their families, and all these were like exclusively available to the like, only white soldiers. Um, obviously, things I think people discriminated against like black and brown, and I think other people who were also veterans and they didn't get the same opportunities afforded to them. And I guess that in of itself is a form like, of like affirmative action um, for these white soldiers, and I think. Because of that, the government responded in kind with affirmative action as we know it now. And I think the general collective understanding of affirmative action is so devoid of that understanding of what happened with the GI Bill. People would probably, i am mean, not necessarily people would probably like change their mind about how they feel about affirmative action, but I think if, if you understand um, how important that was having college degree back then, having the ability to purchase and own a house um, and getting a chance to set up generational wealth um some what 70 years ago and how much like or 80 years ago now how much that like positions i think um other communities like, uh in terms of like a, ge- a generational wealth divide i think it's like kind of unfair call for action like unfair i suppose or it's not even complete with how i think we see like college educations like shaping up today um and, like, are they really, like, a mover and shaker in terms of, like, building generational wealth? I think that's, like... And if they don't come the same thing, then I guess, like, affirmative action, as we know it right now, isn't something to necessarily, like, complain about. Um, especially when you're positioned against what the GI Bill did and how, I think, Black veterans in particular were, like, excluded from opportunities like that way back when.
0: I mean, I think that, like, what you were talking about cuts somewhat to the core of the issue in my mind is that, you know, for a lot of... I feel like white people in this country, it's very hard to disaggregate between a historicized past and individualized performance. You know, it's hard to in that moment where you feel, you know, perhaps threatened by a person of color in terms of admissions or something to, to disaggregate that from a very long and storied history of, you know, discrimination and maltreatment, like you were talking about, especially, you know, related to the GI Bill and things, you know, in the not so recent past of the United States, and I think, you know, that's something that reparations cuts to as well, is that it's really, really difficult for a lot of white Americans, from what I've seen, to, dis- to disaggregate those two things. And, you know, they tend to view it as like a zero-sum game, um, where if you win, that means that I must lose. And I think that's something that, you know, both of these issues struggle with a lot, is how do you, how do you achieve that recognition in someone else's mind? that this is this program or this initiative or whatever it may be is tied to, you know, historical legacies of, you know, mistreatment and segregation and, you know, things that may not exist in American life currently, but very much affected the outcomes of Black Americans. And I think, you know, that's, that's a key struggle of these two programs and these two kind of ideas as they stand. Um, and I don't really know how you address it. I don't really know how you accomplish that, but I think it's very much you know a root cause of a lot of the issues surrounding those two things. Okay,
1: last
3: question. Um, In light of COVID-19 and George Floyd protests, how do you think the Black community will change its attitudes towards immigrants? And just to give more context to this question, um, we were just talking about how uh, COVID-19 has impacted the economy, um, and who knows what will happen to the economy in the near future. I mean, it's bad. Sometimes people can very anti-immigrant because if immigrants are coming, taking their jobs, right, it uh, becomes a zero-sum game for people. And then, but you have the George Floyd protest, which normally, like we talked about, really actually brings at least kind of like Black people together as a whole because they see, okay, it's a common thing that will impact us all. So, yeah.
0: I mean, I guess that's kind of like the million-dollar question. <laughs> um, and we've kind of Talked a lot about it, both with someone who's kind of an expert in the field of you know immigration as it pertains to Black Americans, um, as well as in our podcast with uh, Tarek, a fellow student at Williams, and Jason. Kind of like you were talking about earlier, how you know trauma often serves as a unifying factor, but it's this trauma isn't anything new, which is you know the part that makes me hesitant to say that you know we will see some major changes. As it pertains to the George Floyd protests, Um, you know, these it's, it's an event that has been recreated in the past, and most likely will be recreated again in the future, and has. And, you know, so I think one thing that I've been reckoning with is, you know, why was the George Floyd moment a spark, you know, to quote, you know, myself from earlier, you know, why what is it about the George Floyd killing that did serve as this unifying factor over the summer where people came together across across class and you know, racial lines to call out police violence against black bodies. And I think it serves as a unifying factor in that respect and I don't know what it is about this event that led to that, but I don't know if it's sustainable because it's so commonplace. And to COVID-19, you know, as Chelsea alluded to, you know, COVID-19 is something unprecedented um, for the most part, right? Like while black killings are very common or the police killings of black men are very common, you know, this is a once in a lifetime pandemic that has fundamentally shaped, you know, our lives in ways that, you know, we couldn't have foreseen two years ago. And I think in that respect, and we're seeing it somewhat now, that there's this very isolationist feel to the country as a whole, but also I've noticed you know to myself and my family and my community a one of, of self-preservation of you know, this is a tough time. we need to get through it any way we can. Um, and I don't know whether that takes on an anti-immigrant you know stance. I don't know whether American society is perhaps more anti-immigrant than it was before but you know i think this does represent a a shift that we will see going forward of you know the united states turning inward more turning more towards kind of self-preservation um and i think that's just that's just a consequence of what this emergency was um or perhaps kind of my two my two attitudes towards both how covid-19 will affect immigration going forward as well as kind of the george floyd killing and i
2: I think you'd probably speak more to kind of how people will react more to like COVID. I, I think for me personally, I feel like it's twofold. I think there's one, the influx of immigrants coming into America that I think I'm like, I'm thinking of. And then additionally, there's people who are going to different countries um, from the U S to different To different countries like you don't like vacation or for work and things like that i think on the first hand i would imagine if there is like like another like COVID outbreak i think i would imagine the us would probably become a lot more like cold or closed off to i think immigrant communities um depending on where that like outbreak came from and like knowing america and it's like it's history probably like resentful to those communities however I think it is a bit hypocritical in that we've already seen how I think Americans have gone over, like even during the pandemic to like these different countries, like like Jamaica, or Antigua, or somewhere like in Dominican Republic, like carrying these like, like carrying COVID going there and it's like treating it as like a like a vacation while endangering like the people who like live there right now. And I think it's that like neglect and disrespect that's I think being done the American side onto like, these like different like countries, often countries of color. And I think it's wildly disrespectful. And then it's obviously like hypocritical if you're gonna treat a country like that, like how can you be upset when a country, someone from a different country treats us like that? And I think that's like something I'm thinking of moving forward as it pertains to immigration. However, I, I think like everything like concerning like George Floyd is a lot harder to, I think within the summer, Last summer, with like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, I think George Floyd's was another case where we had this like extremely jarring, extremely like traumatizing like spectacle of black death or black murder rather. And I think how inhumane the act was kind of like gave everyone pause. I think pause enough to like think, well, okay, we need more time to reflect. And I think. It's unfortunate it's, uh, it's those moments that like give you more time to reflect. But I think as Jason said, because these are coming more commonplace, like the spectacles are becoming more commonplace. I I fear what the next resonating, like not resonating, but I guess for lack of a better word, what is that next resonating like spectacle? It's going to pause and allow us to come together because I, I feel like all these different things happen in such like different traumatizing pockets. It's kind of un- it's kind of hard to like project as to like where this is gonna take us next.
3: I honestly think at this point, to answer the question more directly, that I think the black community's um feeling towards immigration or it's really left unchanged, but also I think because people are just stunned by everything. Like I think right now it will take time for people really to digest what's happened. I mean. Like we talked about the George Floyd, I mean, how many more shootings have there been in this week with like police that people are dealing with? Um, And even with COVID, right? Everyone trying to get the vaccine right now and everything. Yeah, with immigration, I still feel like a lot of times, like the Black community, still isn't tying right now immigration to other Black people, like necessarily, because you know it's been more connected with you know people from Asian countries coming. And yeah, just like what Jason said about, I think more what's happened, especially with black immigrants and people from like, Caribbean and everything. It's like people going to those places, not really thinking these are actually places people live. Yeah, just not having respect for that, like at all. And being willing to really like, to lead to deaths just to like visit a place right now. But I think right now, people are truly just focused on getting back to normal and moving on. So I don't think people really want to reflect about immigration, about police brutality, about reparations, about any of these issues like we've talked about. it just doesn't matter right now.